I was thinking this last week about our reputations. And you know our reputations are funny things. Sometimes it follows us. Sometimes it precedes us. You know our reputations can harm us. There is a company that's out there that if you own a business and you have received poor reviews online, you can hire this company and they will go online and they will clear up your reputation. If your reputation is true and accurate or not, they can clean it up and they can give you a good reputation. Our reputations can work for us or our reputations can work against us. Our reputations can determine our social standing, whether good or whether bad. Our reputations can determine how much influence we have. Our reputations can even help us as we pursue and look and experiment in the job market. Our reputations, like it or not, have a huge impact on our lives. This morning we're continuing our journey through the book of Thessalonians. And this morning we want to come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And as we look at this passage this morning, we are reminded of the reputation that the church of Thessalonica had. We looked last time we were together at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, and it's our meditation verse this week. And 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 says this, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The people of Thessalonica had become an example to many. And as we think about them being an example, we want to look at them as an example and think about them as an example. But due to their example, they had a reputation. And as we look at that reputation this morning, we want to see and recognize not only were they an example worth imitating, but they and their reputation were a reputation worth pursuing. And as we look at this passage this morning, hopefully this will be our mindset. That as we see their reputation, that we'll see it as a reputation that we as individuals should pursue. Hopefully we'll see this reputation that they have as a reputation worth us as a church pursuing as well. So open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 8 through 10 together. When you find 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, I invite you to stand with me. I'll, write, I'll read it aloud and you can follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 reads this way. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, we are grateful for this morning that you've given to us. <coughs> grateful for the opportunity to sit here this morning and examine your word. We pray, Father, that as your word is open in our hands, that our hearts would be open to your word as well. 
we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we know that I'm just a man. I'm unworthy of proclaiming your word this morning. But I pray, Father, that as your word is proclaimed, that we would hear your word. We know, Lord, that can't be done by me, but it has to be done by your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move freely this morning, that we would be able to leave here this morning saying that we have heard from you. We are grateful for who you are, Lord, especially grateful for your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we examine this passage of Scripture, there are three things that we want to use to kind of lead us through this passage and kind of direct us. The first thing that we see here is that Church of Thessalonica had a reputation of being gospel-spreading. They were had a gospel-spreading reputation. The second thing we see is they had a God-serving reputation. And the third thing we see is that they had a Christ-awaiting reputation. Now, as we dive into this passage, we want to dive into verse 8 here, and we want to look at their gospel-spreading reputation. It says in verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, we talked about this verse last week when we were together. The word of the Lord was the gospel. And the church of Thessalonica knew that the gospel that had come to them was from God. Paul had shared with them that it was our gospel, but they knew that it was from God. And Paul knew it was from God as well. And he saw it, and he put that much importance behind it, knowing that it was the word of God that came. And, and we wonder sometimes why the word of God is under attack. You know, Satan would like nothing more than to silence the word of God. The word of God, as we've seen it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Word of God has a way of changing lives. The Word of God has a way of impacting lives and shaping lives and molding lives. The Word of God does that. And Satan would like nothing more than to silence that so we don't turn from our sin, so that we don't turn and follow God. Satan would much rather us follow him. And Satan is constantly looking to silence the Word of God and to cause people to question the Word of God. As we look at Satan, we saw him busy in the Garden of Eden. What did he do to Eve? Is that what God really said? That was his question for Eve. So Eve began to question the Word of God. Satan still works the same way, wanting the Word of God to be questioned. Now the church of Thessalonica, as they heard the Word of God, they knew it was the Word of God. They recognized it as the Word of God. And notice what happens in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. They heard the word of God. They received the word of God. And they began to proclaim the word of God. The gospel message did not remain within them. The gospel message began to ooze out of them. And they began to proclaim the gospel message. The word that's used here for sounded forth, this word refer, refers to a herald's horn. A horn would be sounded to get people's attention when there was to be an announcement. If there was an enemy coming to the village, a horn would be sounded so people would know to be on the defense. They were to know to be aware. A herald would sound his horn when he's going to make an announcement. 
It wasn't a quiet sound. It wasn't something that was muffled. It was something for all to hear. And that's the word that's used here in regards to the church of Thessalonica. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. And it went not only in Thessalonica, the city, but it went into the region of Macedonia. And it went into Achaia, which was a neighboring region. And it all went out from Macedonia. Now, it's an interesting thing here. This word sounded forth from you is in present tense. It's not in past tense. It's not in future tense. It's in present tense. And this simply means that the gospel message was sounding out from them at this current time. They weren't waiting for a day in the future. You know, on July 1st, guys, we are really going to start sounding that trumpet and letting the gospel be heard. It wasn't, hey guys, do you remember in the summer of 73? Do you remember how good we were at proclaiming the word of God? Those were good days. It wasn't like that at all. He's saying, right now, you guys are proclaimers of the word of God. You are proclaimers of the gospel message. It had sounded forth, and it would continue to sound forth. And you know, as I read this, and I, I was reading this and, and thinking about this, he says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, the people of Thessalonica had to let the word of God go forth. They couldn't hold it with them. And I was thinking about what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He said, if I say I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Have you ever had one of those announcements where it was just so hard to hold in? You know, somebody shares with you some, some news at the grocery store, You've just got to let it out. You know it's a secret. You know it can't be shared yet. But, boy, you've just got to tell. It's just, it's just like eating at you. You just, can't, you just can't do it anymore. You've got to let it out. And sometimes it's juicy gossip that you shouldn't be sharing. But sometimes maybe it's special news. Being a pastor, I've received a few phone calls from time to time saying, Hey, can you pray with us? We think we're expecting, but we're waiting until we go to the doctor. You know how hard that is to keep my mouth shut? Because I'm excited. I mean, that, that, that excites me. I, I love church growth programs like that. It makes me excited. I want to let people know, but, but they've got to let other family members know first. So I have, to, I have to keep it quiet for a while. It's hard to hold in. And that's, that's where Jeremiah was. He tried to keep it quiet. He couldn't keep it quiet. It was... It was burning within him, and he just couldn't. And Jeremiah had to share the word of the Lord. The people of Thessalonica couldn't keep it quiet. Their sins had been forgiven. They wanted to proclaim it. They had to proclaim it. And notice what it says in verse 8 there. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Their faith was in God. Their faith in God was a solid faith in God. As persecution and as trials came their way, their faith stood strong. Their faith did not waver. 
And in the midst of their standing strong, in the midst of their proclaiming the good news, there was joy. Remember back in verse 6, just look up at verse 6 there. It says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So even though there was affliction, even though there was persecution, the news was just so good. That joy was just overflowing. And they had to sound that herald's horn. They had to let people know the good news of Jesus Christ. They had to do it. And it says that you became, or sorry, uh, verse 8 now. It says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. There, the news of their faith spread. The news of their faith spread. This faith was seen within the church. They were seeing that faith within their church. They were seeing that faith within their own homes. Their faith was being seen by people who didn't have faith. People could see their faith because they could see their change of behavior. And the reputation for that began to spread. And people began to talk about it. Now notice verse 8 as it continues. It says, so that we need not say anything. Their faith reputation was such that the ministry team didn't even have to come and say, hey, you know what's happening in Macedonia. They already knew. Word was traveling fast. People saw their faith. They saw the faith they had in the message. And when they heard that message proclaimed, they could see their faith. They knew they believed that message. And they proclaimed the message that they believed. You know, as I look at this and as I think about this reputation that they had, I think this is a reputation that's desirable. It should be a reputation that's desirable by us. We should be men and women who believe in the gospel message. We should be men and women who believe in the word of God. And that belief, that truth, that understanding of the truth should affect how we live. People should look at us and, and realize we're not of this world. We are different. And we should have a reputation of that. That should be a reputation that precedes us. That should be a reputation that follows us. That we are men and women who believe and who proclaim the gospel message. That should be a reputation we desire. When we have a desire for a certain reputation, aren't we careful in what we do? Aren't we careful in what we, how we handle ourselves? If we are men and women who desire a reputation of spreading the gospel, we're going to be men and women busy spreading the gospel. We're going to be men and women who believe in the gospel and spend time spreading the gospel. The church of Thessalonica had a reputation of spreading the gospel. But the church of Thessalonica also had a reputation of serving God. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us 
the kind of reception we had among you. When the gospel message came to Thessalonica, they were receptive to the message. Their hearts were receptive to the message. The soil of their hearts was prepared and it was ready for the gospel. So when the gospel came, it was soil that had been prepared. It was soil that was ready for the seed of the gospel. And when that seed was planted, it just took off. We have a spot behind our house that seems to collect all of our pumpkins every year. And I went out there the other day and there's just a handful of pumpkin seeds. So me being of sound mind and sound body, I grabbed a handful of potting soil. And I went back and I dumped it on those seeds. I sprayed them with water. And you know what? In about four days, I probably have 25 pumpkin plants coming out of that one pile of potting soil. That potting soil was perfect for those seeds. And as those seeds felt that soil, and as they took root in that soil, as that water hit them, they just began sprouting, they began growing. And I've been transplanting them to fertile soil in some of your yards. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to share that. Matthew 13, verse 8, shares this. Other seeds fell on good soil, and they produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. That's what happened to the church of Thessalonica. The, Paul and his ministry team came. And they began to share that seed. And that seed fell on good soil. And the gospel message and the word of God took root in people's lives. And lives were changed. Because the people were receptive. And they were so receptive that people heard about how receptive they were. Now notice what it says in verse 9 as it continues. And they heard how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This verse 9 is a picture of what true repentance looks like. Repentance is simply means taking a U-turn, turning from something and going in the opposite direction to something else. And that's what the, the church of Thessalonica did. They went to U-turn. They repented of their sins. They changed from following idols to living for and serving the one true God. As they turned from their idols, this was the first step in repentance. Thessalonica was stooped in idol worship. Idol worship was something that was heavily tied into their economy. And yet they turned from that idol worship. And they turned to the one true God. Turning from those idols could have had an economic impact. Turning from those idols could have had a social impact. But they turned from those idols. Darcy and I have some friends who are church planters in Utah. And they make it their goal to go to towns in Utah that don't have Bible teaching churches. And they will establish a church. And one of the things that happens to them is they establish in a town and they start seeing people who get saved out of Mormonism. And then those 
towns and in Utah, Mormonism is, is everywhere. And one of the things that they see in those towns is people get saved. Business owners lose business. Because the church knows, the Mormon church knows, when they have turned away from following Mormonism. And when they turn away from following Mormonism, other Mormons in the town stop doing business there. Think about that. You own the local hardware store. You turn to crimes. People in the town who follow Mormonism hear that you've turned to Christ. They will stop doing business at your hardware store. And they will shop elsewhere, even if it means driving to another town. There's an economic impact for turning to Christ. Here in Thessalonica, there was an economic impact for turning from those idols, turning to the one true God. But we see them turning from idols. And notice as verse 9 continues, it says, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is the second step in repentance. Turning from idols and turning to the one true God. And that's what they've done. They've turned from one thing and they've turned to the one true God. Now if they were to turn from idol, from one idol, and turn to another idol, that's not repentance. But turning from one idol and turning to the one true God is a 180 degree turn. And that's what the people of Thessalonica had done. They had turned to God and they were now serving Him. Verse 9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They had a reputation as being people who served the living and true God. I don't know about you, but I would love to have that reputation. I would love to have that reputation. When I was in eighth grade, my high school football team did a great job. Uh, after a couple of losses, when our football team went out to shake hands, they decided it was a time to do some MMA. It was before MMA was inv invented. So we were the creators of MMA, that's fighting. And so that, we would do the lineup to shake hands and then our football team would just break out into a fight and we would get in fights. And so we had a, we had a reputation of being fighters. And I remember going to a student council meeting and we had student councils from other teams in our district. And it was just an open opportunity, an open forum. And they said, what are some things that you hear about these schools? And these other schools, they would say, well, we know that you guys are all skiers because you live in a ski resort and that's your reputation. And they went through all of us. And here we are. What is your reputation? We're a great baseball school. We're a great basketball school. Some of your kids are the best looking kids in our conference. You know, we're waiting for those kinds of things. And they said, what is your reputation? And they said, you're better at fighting than you are at athletics. <laughs> so what did we do? We broke out in a fight. <laughs> but that was our reputation. This reputation of, of being people who serve God. That is a reputation we should desire. That is a reputation that would be a great reputation to precede us. That would be a great reputation that would come behind us. 
As people come and join this church, they say, you know what? Hundreds of years ago, you had a reputation for serving God. Today, you have a reputation for serving God. And as we move forward, we want that reputation of being men and women who serve the one true and living God. That should be a reputation we should desire. They had a reputation for being spreaders of the gospel. They had a reputation for being people who served God. And the last thing we see here is that they had a reputation for being people who were awaiting the return of Christ. Look at verse 10 with me. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. They were spreading the message. They were serving God. And they were waiting for the return of Christ. This idea of waiting for the return. You wait for his son from heaven. The idea there is waiting with eagerness. Remember how when you were a kid and you waited for Christmas. You waited with eagerness. Now that you have kids. One eye on the horizon. Waiting for his return. How did they know? How did they know that Jesus was going to return? Verse 10 says, To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. They knew Jesus would come back because Jesus had been raised from the dead. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He had paid the penalty for their sin. And they were waiting for that same Savior to return and deliver them completely and fully, finalizing their salvation. That's what they were waiting for. Ready for that return trip that they too would be glorified. They were waiting for Jesus. They knew he was going to return because Jesus said he would return. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, before he was crucified, that he would return. It says in John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. When I was a kid, my grandma would often come and she would come for Christmas. And because we had a week off of school and because I didn't like to go to school, my grandma would take me home with her and I'd get to spend Christmas break at her house. So I would look forward to her coming because I knew I was gonna be going fresh apricot tarts every morning for breakfast. <laughs> Look forward to those. I knew it was going to happen. They knew Jesus was going to come because Jesus said he was going to come. They knew he was going to be he was going to come because as the disciples were standing there watching Jesus ascend into heaven, some angels showed up. And some angels had a message. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says this, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, 
he was lifted up, Jesus was, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I'm sure there's no doubt that Paul also proclaimed to them that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus is coming back. And so they were waiting with anticipation for the return of Christ. Now as we think about the return of Christ, there is some confusion about Christ's return. There's confusion in regards to the return of Christ. And I think this is a good place to seek to clarify that. We'll look at more into it as we move through the book of Thessalonians because Paul talks about it in every chapter. But the Jews in Jesus' time, they failed to recognize that the Messiah was going to come two times. The scriptures point to the Messiah that would come as a child and he would suffer. The scriptures also point to the Messiah who was going to come and he would drive out the enemy and he would set up his... The rabbis recognized this conflict in scripture. Some of the rabbis ignored that the Messiah would suffer, and they said, no, that's not the Messiah, he's not going to suffer. Other people looked at the suffering Messiah, and they suggested that there were going to be two Messiahs, that two Messiahs would come. One Messiah would come and suffer, and the second Messiah would come, and he would set up his kingdom. Some have even identified that first Messiah, the suffering Messiah, as the Messiah who would come for the Gentiles. But you know, we as the church, followers of Christ, we understand how it worked. Jesus came the first time as a baby, and he suffered, and he went to the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he died on that cross and was buried and rose again. And he is going to come a second time, and he's going to come a second time, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to rule from on earth. And so we know how that worked. As we look at the prophecy, we see how that works. Some Christians, and many Christians today, do the same thing in regards to the return of Christ. As you look in Scripture, some Scripture points to the return of Christ as being imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time. And as we think about that, Many people look at that and see that imminent return. The Thessalonians were waiting for that imminent return. Other passages in Scripture share that many things must happen before the return of Christ. That the return of Christ is not imminent. They, we read that the Antichrist must come first in the book of Daniel. That the Antichrist must come first before the return. The tribulation period, which is a seven-year period, has to happen. That's shared in Daniel as well. So as you look at those passages, the return of Christ is not imminent. It's going to take at least seven years. And this is why there are different opinions as to the return of Christ. Because people don't understand the return of Christ. And even in just sharing this, we either have a contradiction or we just don't understand fully. There are two thoughts in regards to the return of Christ. And the first one is known as the rapture. The word rapture doesn't appear in Scripture. That's because the word 
rapture is a Latin word. Scripture was written in Greek, and we have an English copy on our laps. I think most of us do anyway. Some of us may have a different language, but I'm thinking English is most of us. The word caught up is the word that appears in our English Bibles. And that word for caught up carries the idea of a violent transportation. We're going to be caught up quickly, is this picture. This is imminent. It's not dated. It could happen at any time. It could take place at any moment. It's a signless event that's going to take place. It will be the divine collection of believers. And we're going to meet Jesus in the clouds. Paul shares more about this in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. This is chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. We will be violently transported together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. You see, the people of Thessalonica had thought that they had missed out on the rapture. And, G and Paul says, comfort each other with these words. Christ is not going to come to the earth for the rapture. Instead, the church is going to be caught up and we're going to meet in the clouds. The dead in Christ, those who passed away who already know Jesus, they're going to rise first. And we may think, hey, that's unfair. But we already have a six-foot head start because we're still alive. We're six foot above them. When that trumpet sounds, we're going to be caught up in our new glorified bodies and we're going to meet Christ in the clouds. And that's the rapture. And we're going to go home for the wedding feast, the wedding banquet, the bride and the bridegroom are going to be there. And for that seven years, we're going to be enjoying that banquet table. And during that seven years, the tribulation period is going to be taking place here on earth. We are looking forward to the rapture. That's the next event on the church's calendar. Looking ahead, the rapture. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to take place. The second coming. The second coming is not the rapture. Just to make sure you heard me. The second rapture, the second coming is not the rapture. Certain events must happen prior to the second coming. The second coming is different. As I shared with you earlier, Daniel shares with us that the Antichrist will come and he will reign. There's a seven-year period. 
that's going to happen known as the Great Tribulation Period. The Great Tribulation Period is a time of judgment. It's a time when God pours out His judgment. It's called Jacob's Trouble because it's a period of time where the Jewish people are going to experience judgment. The Antichrist is going to focus on the people of Israel, on the Jewish people, and going to persecute them. And for a period of time, the Antichrist will rule. It'll be a short seven-year reign. And then Christ is going to come and easily defeat the Antichrist. And when Christ defeats the Antichrist, he's coming with us. We will return with Christ, and we will rule with Christ. And we will rule for that thousand years. Satan will be bound up for that thousand years. There will be no influence. His influence won't be available for a thousand years. And Christ is going to rule from this earth. And he will be king. And all of those prophetic promises of the Old Testament will be fulfilled in his reign and in his rule while he's here on earth. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released for a moment. Satan will be defeated. And we will go into all of eternity. But that is the second coming. Not the rapture. It is different from the rapture. Sorry about that rabbit trail. It's only two o'clock. We still have time. Notice verse 10. He says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who delivers us. He delivers us as believers. Christ is going to come in the clouds and he's going to deliver us. The church will be caught up to meet him. The dead in Christ will rise first. We have that six foot head start. And we're going to join Christ in the clouds. As true believers, we should be waiting for that return. We should be waiting for that return. To be honest with you, I pray every Sunday morning that today's the day. I pray that he returns before I have to preach. Because I would love nothing more than to miss you guys here and be with you as we gather together in heaven. That would make my palms a whole lot less sweaty. But as we serve, as we spread the news of Jesus Christ, we should be doing so as if we know the return is present. Sometimes, as we think about that, it's easy for us sometimes to push the thought away of today being the day of his return. But you know, that should be a thought that should continually come our way. Today could be the day that he returns. Monday morning could be the day that he returns. Wouldn't that make just your Monday morning fantastic? Man, I hate Monday mornings, but this was a great one. This is a great one. That would be good. Sometimes we look forward to our weekends and we can't help but anticipate Friday because we got lots of plans. But you know what if Friday was the day that Christ returned? That would be a much better weekend than spending it even at Lake Hudson. This could be the day. Christ's return. 
We think about that. We should be serving, anticipating. One eye on what we're doing and one eye on the horizon. Because we don't know when he's going to return. We don't know when we're going to be caught up. Today could be the day. So there you have it. And we come to the end of chapter 1. Some of you guys didn't think we were going to ever get there. We see the church of Thessalonica being a church that had a reputation for being gospel spreaders. The church of Thessalonica had a reputation for serving God. The church of Thessalonica had a reputation of being people who were waiting for the return of Christ. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? What do we apply to our Monday morning? I really think the first thing that we've got to think about is the thought about what is our reputation. I say that, what is our reputation? I think it's important that we ask that, self, ask that question of us as a church. As a church, what is our reputation? What is our reputation of a, as a church? You know, sometimes as a church, we can, we can have a reputation of being a bunch of hypocrites. That they go on Sundays and they look nice on Sundays, but come Sunday afternoon, they, they don't look anything like that. Monday mornings, they're no different than the world. And that can be a reputation that a church has. And you know what? We should make sure that as a church, we don't have the reputation. Sometimes we can have a reputation of people who just don't care. We should take care that we don't have that reputation. And you know, we think about that as a church, the only way we can change that is the reputation we have as individuals. How are we living for Christ? How are we doing in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ? How are we doing in serving Jesus Christ? Is it something that we do on Sunday mornings only? Is it something that we do throughout the remainder of the week? What is our reputation? Are we spreading the news of Jesus Christ? Do we have that reputation? Are we men and women who are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that our reputation? Do we have a reputation of eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. Someone told me once that if you're too heavenly minded, you're, you're no earthly good. And I would have to disagree. Because if I'm earthly minded, I'm no earthly good either. But if I'm heavenly minded, that's going to change my earthly behavior. And if my earthly behavior is heavenly minded, I'm going to make an impact. Not an impact that just lasts this week. I'm going to make an eternal impact. And so I need to be heavenly minded so that I'm making an eternal impact. 